Mama is usually the most important person when it comes to keeping traditions alive in southern Italy. We eat a delicious soup of fava beans and chickpeas. Our mamas prepare every single day this yeah. delicious soup. So we always tell to our mama, Mama, voglio una zuppa di ceci. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Two of our favorite guides from Sicily are here to take us on a wild ride through the deep south of Italy. Everything is now blended in a mix of organized chaos. You know, we are so good at that that we are able to manage chaos, organize it, and live with it. Closer to home, the Carolina coast boasts an interesting pirate history. Author Terence Zepke tells us the image we have of swashbuckling pirates is pretty much true. They knew how to live large, and they knew that they probably would die, so they lived it hard and fast while they were still here. From the land of organized chaos to the pirates of the Carolinas, buckle up, it's Travel with Rick Steves. The coastline of colonial America was once a wild and dangerous place, especially if you came across the pirates whose ships plied the waters off the Carolinas. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and coming up in a bit, an expert on the pirates of the Carolinas tells us where you can trace the history of legendary seafarers like Blackbeard and Captain Kidd, and just how close those Johnny Depp movies are to what it was really like. Let's start out today's Travel with Rick Steves with an insider's look at the deep south of Italy. Two guides from Sicily join us now to help us understand how things work on the island of organized chaos and what the sparse lands in the heel of Italy hold in store for adventurous travelers. About the first thing a child learns about the map of Europe is Italy looks like a boot and Sicily looks like a football. And most of us who love Italy love the uh, center in the north of Italy, and the south of Italy is quite a mystery. Today I want to talk about the boot of Italy. Deep down in the south, Puglia, Basilicata, Calabria, and then we'll jump over the straits and check out Sicily. I'm joined by two southern Italians, Alfio Di Moro and Tommaso Pante. Alfio and Tommaso, thanks for joining us. Yes. Sure, our pleasure. Now when I say southern Italians, I think you both live in Sicily, don't you? Yes. Yes. Is it okay for me to call you Southern Italians, or do you want to be called Sicilians? Sicilians. Well, Sicilianity is very important for us. Your Sicilianity? Yes, is that a word? this is a new word, yeah, Sicilianity. The Sicilianity <laughs> in this room is quite exciting right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we're going to talk about everything south of Naples, basically, and as tour guides, you know the south of Italy. If we think of uh, the southern part of Italy, there's three regions there, uh, Puglia, Basilicata, and Calabria. Calabria. If it's a boot, if you're thinking of a boot with the toe nearest to uh, Sicily, you know, the heel would be Puglia, yes. the instep would be Basilicata, and the toe would be Calabria. That's right. Now, how would you compare and contrast these three regions in southern Italy, Alfio? They're pretty much all similar. The only distinction I will make is that Basilicata doesn't really have a long coastline, ah, okay? Yep. So it, it has never been really accessible as the other two regions. So more been, remote then? Yes, more remote. Tommaso, how would you compare the different regions, uh, Puglia, Basilicata, Calabria? The mentality is different of the three different regions. And how's that? I would say Puglia is much more evoluted. Huh? Evolved. Yes. Evolved, yes. Okay. For example, Bari is considered the Milan of the South because all the economical activity are located oh, okay. in Bari. So the people in Puglia are more sophisticated I would and, say, And yes. Bari is the cosmopolitan capital of Puglia. Of Puglia, of the southern part of Italy. B-A-R-I. Yes. And yes. that's a port town. A lot of us know Brindisi because that's where the boat goes to yeah. Greece. Mm -hmm. yeah. Just north of Brindisi it is, is north Bari. Of Brindisi. Okay, so the Puglia people are more sophisticated than Basilicata and Calabria? Basilicata, I would say they are uh, evolving. I mean, uh, I would put Basilicata in the middle, uh -huh. and then Calabria is uh, on the rear. So that's the Wild West. <laughs> exactly, the wild that's west. the Wild yeah. West, yes. <laughs> now, these areas are generally, Italy is quite densely populated. Uh, yes. What, 60, 70 million people in Italy, the size of California, but less than one million people in Basilicata, for instance. So not so many people down there? Yeah, yeah, in Basilicata, no. Sparsely populated. Yeah. From a traveler's point of view, if the history is poor, the sightseeing today is humble. There's no great churches, great memorials, great monuments there because they didn't have a lot of money in the past. Is that a fair generalization? Uh, yes, I would say yes. Um, I mean, this was one of the poorest area of Italy in general. So they didn't have a lot of money, a lot of immigration. Also, we had a lot of immigrants, which emigrated, especially from Calabria 
in Basilicata to the United States, Australia. Very good point. A lot of Americans think about the old country and they think about the region of the old country from where they came as quintessential to the old country. But really, they came from the most wretched part of the old country because it made the most sense to get the heck out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you've got certain parts of Ireland or Sweden or, or Italy. Yes. That becomes the American image of Italy in this case. But really, it's the American image of Calabria. Yeah. And you know what happened? Most of the people left from very small town and, you know, a couple of generations just were gone. So only the older people remained there. And after they died, lots of villages became ghost villages. So you have ghost villages? Yes, in Calabria and Sicily, you can find lots of ghost villages because of that. How many Americans are with the Sicilian uh, ancestry? You know, 1880s, 1920s, things were so bad in Sicily right after unification and especially in the verge of World War I, uh, that a lot of people left. Now, after so many years, we have 18 million Sicilian Americans in U.S. We have only 5 million Sicilians in Sicily. So the, the ancestors of the people who left Sicily are in the United States now to the tune of 18 million people. Yes. And if I can spend a word about the people that left, if you think for a second, poor condition, uh, no education, the people who left the country were the best people, were the people that didn't want to settle for a poor life. The people with the, the people, strong spirit. Yeah, left. strong spirit. You know, because just imagine, Rick, to put everything you own in a little suitcase, pay a lot of money that you sometimes don't have, and do one on a lifetime journey on a steamboat. And end up in New York, a end very up rough New York, and city with no being money. Being sometimes in quarantine. Lots of people... They didn't maintain the connection, the contact with the family in Sicily because guess what? It was too painful. Family is one of our heritage. We are so close together. And being in a new world without any member of the family was something so painful. A lot of people prefer not to write letters because it was killing them. Our favorite guides from Sicily, Alfio Di Mauro and Tommaso Ponte, are taking us through the deep south of Italy right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You can post your impressions of the region on our radio message board. You'll find that in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Now, what characterizes the cuisine in the, in the deep south there? The cuisine of the deep south, actually, it is more healthy, okay, versus the cuisine of the north, because that is actually the quintessential Mediterranean diet. That means a lot of carbohydrates, fibers, fat coming from olive oil, not from animal, and uh, fresh vegetables. So it used to be poor, but now actually it is credited to be the more efficient. Because lifestyles are growing more healthy, and here you've got uh, the, the fruit of the land direct. Yeah, exactly. Not Tomaso. only the food of the land, also the food from the ocean. We must not forget the fish. Fish is one of the most important kind of food that you can find in the southern part of Italy. Swordfish and tuna fish is one of the main courses that we have in our table. You can find every single day fish. Now, when we think about southern Italy, I think we've got to remember a lot of Americans complain about the prices. You know, Florence and Venice and Milan and Rome are so expensive. What are the prices like in southern Italy, uh, Elfio? It, it is still very reasonable there. Okay. Would it be less expensive than Milano? Definitely less expensive than the north of Italy or the very big cities. Tommaso? Yes, I agree with that, especially if you go in a good restaurant, you never pay more than 15 or 20 euros with an excellent bottle of wine, red or white wine. If you go in the northern part of Italy, probably you spend the double. So in terms of quality, I would say the quality of the food in south of Italy is excellent, at the price, as much, much inexpensive. You get a meal with a bottle of wine? Uh, yes, I mean, uh, an antipasto, un primo piatto, un secondo, and a bottle of wine, 20 euros. Get away from the historical center a little bit. Try to go to a small trattoria, a local trattoria, where the local people go. Okay. So you could have a simple uh, rural country and small towns mm -hmm. and still have people that appreciate the good cuisine and have restaurants that serve it at the local price standards. Yes. 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 For example, a great option is to go to the agriturismo farmhouse. Oh, yes. You find a lot of farmhouse and agriturismo in all these three regions, the four regions we're talking about. Now, when I think of southern Italy, I think the most famous icon visually for a tourist is the Trullo houses. 
Explain this to me, Tommaso. So Trullo Houses is one of the oldest houses in Puglia region. The capital of the Trullo is Alberobello, which is a UNESCO World Heritage So Alberobello. Yes. And there you've got more than a thousand of these whitewashed kind of teepee houses that yes. go back. How old is the architecture, actually? You can easily still find truly that they go up to the 1400, and sometimes they are older than that. So from Middle Ages, really? Yeah, but there's a little mystery around the truly because nobody really knows exactly from where this kind of architecture come from. Alfio, describe, so for people who don't know these things, a trullo house. It is easy to imagine a trullo as uh, the walls are cylindrical, and then on top of that you put a roof which is conical. A conical roof, okay. Yeah, it is easy to understand why. It is this uh, truly were built without mortar, just so, with dry stone. If you can imagine, this is the only structure that can... Uh, sustain itself without mortar. So you've got limestone slabs stacked in a cylinder on the walls and then a cone on the top. Yeah, and then there's a keystone on the and very the, what, top. And it's topped with something of some religious or pagan importance? Yes, and then there are there are keystone, that, uh, lots of representation symbols. Most of them are pagan, but mm-hmm. then with the time they became Christian. So singular true low, plural. Truly. Truly. Yeah, and if you want a bigger house, you just you put more units of this all together. And then the other big site that comes to mind in southern Italy is Matera. And we know that because of the vivid images from Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, which was filmed in Matera. Tommaso, tell us about Matera. Matera is a beautiful town, another UNESCO World Heritage. Uh, the Sassi of Matera was called in the past the shame of Italy because until 1956, 57, you know, the population lived in a very bad uh, condition. You said the Sassi of Matera. What is the Sassi? Stones. The stone what? Houses? Stones. No, I mean, these are a sort of caves. So because people lived in cave dwellings? In caves dwelling, yes, made with white light. And it was stone. the shame of Italy because it was so poverty-stricken. Absolutely. So they, people living like animals in these caves. Animals. They didn't have any sewage system, any running water. I mean, this was absolutely one area where the condition of life were really bad. So the government decided at a certain point to evacuate this population from this area, and they built the and new... And they sent the army there to do that. People didn't want to leave because they, they didn't know in what kind of condition they were living. So the army came in, flushed out the people. Yes. I would imagine the government gave them yeah. nice houses in Potenza or something like yes. this. Also, Actually, they built the new district of Matera. The right there. Ah. So the, the government it made them a deal that, okay, you're going to be out of this poor district. We're going to give you a new house, but then we are going to be the owners of the old district. And today, uh, as a, from a tourist point of view, it's an interesting place to check out? Absolutely. It is a great place to Absolutely. check out. Absolutely. If you go by night, for example, it looks like a great nativity. You just imagine with your imagination to see Mary, Jesus Christ, and the donkey going through these little steps. This is the imagination, the figure that I have of Matera. I believe me, this with your imagination, just with a little bit of your imagination, you see all these donkeys coming down. It's really great. So it takes you right down to biblical times visually, and Mel Gibson saw that and thought, hey, let's make this a movie. This was a great choice for him. <laughs> Ma- Matera, M-A-T-E-R-A, in Basilicata. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking the boot of Italy, the deep south of Italy with Alfio Di Moro, Tommaso Ponte, and your calls coming up momentarily as we travel through Italy and we head over to Sicily. Uh, my name is Peter Boltzmann. I'm from uh, Hungary. Um, do you know that we have got one of the longest words in the whole world? We always brag about that word. What uh, is it? I'm dying to hear. Uh, the word is megszentségtelenítetetlenség eskedéseitekkel. What does it mean? <laughs> well, personally, I'm not too convinced that the whole thing makes sense, but it's one word. It's 42 letters, and the root word is sent, only five letters, and there's one prefix and about uh, 16 suffixes on it. This is what makes Hungarian so difficult for, for foreigners. But pitit pitit is not too difficult, is it? All right. We'll explore the legacy of the Pirates of the Carolinas in just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, we're enjoying a guided ramble through the sights, cultures, and flavors of the far south of Italy, including nearby Sicily, with Tommaso Ponti and Alfio Di Moro, plus your calls for our guides at 877-333-7425. 
Alfio, we've talking about the, the beautiful, almost biblical images of the town of Matira in Basilicata in the very far south of Italy, and the dramatic architecture and history comes with some unique cuisine. What's your insight on the cuisine of uh, this part of Italy? Matera is in Basilicata region, and we just said a few minutes before that Basilicata has a really short coastline, so it has always been isolated. Uh, that means not a lot of fish in their diet, but lots of meat, okay? Mm. Back in the ancient times, the problem when you slaughter an animal is to preserve the meat. Is that right? Yeah. You know, back in, in the poor times especially, an animal was so important for the family that once it was slaughtered, he had to last for as long as possible. So the people of that area, they ended up inventing the, what is today the salami. Ah. Okay, so they diced the meat, they dried it out, they put some spices that mm-hmm. have antibacterial activity, they put inside a, what was an intestine, and they... So you spice up the meat, shove it in an intestine, and it will help it keep longer. And then you yeah. dry... And the, you dry it. The, yeah, and then that will keep the meat for months. Now, would this be uh, like game? Is there still... Uh, no, 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 you do that with pork, essentially. Pork. Yes. okay. Yes, and the, the region in, back in Roman times was called Lucania... And the first name for sausage is Lucanica, actually, because it comes really from there. And the spiciness goes back to the poverty times when they need to keep their meat forever, and it's spicy yes. today. What about horse meat? Are people eating horse meat down there? People are, they eat horse meat in the south. Uh, More than the north. In some region of the north as well. It's very popular, especially in the city of Catania. When you pass through the city of Catania, you see beautiful barbecues outside, and they're roasting horse meat. So you can stop there, you can have a plate, and they put the horse meat in your plate with beautiful... In Catania, that's Yes, in Catania, yes. do you enjoy horse meat? Uh, well, I don't like it. What about the ear-shaped pasta? Orecchiette. Is that typical of the south or all over? That is typical of Puglia region. Puglia? Yeah, yeah. It is um, actually fun to make orecchiette. It's very easy. The only thing that you have to do is prepare the dough, and then with a little cylindrical shape, just make all of this round uh, thing, and then you... With your thumb, ah, that's the press thumb it, press. and you obtain the orecchiette pasta. So the children probably enjoy helping mom yes. with this. All right. It takes really few minutes to do that. Orecchiette and broccoli is the typical recipes that we have in this area. So they get the food simply by, you know, the land. What about garbanzo beans, tagliatelle, fava beans, chicory? Fava beans was a very poor kind of food in the past. Uh, chickpeas, for example, is another kind of food which is very popular in the South. We eat a delicious soup of fava beans and chickpeas. Our mamas prepare every single day this yeah. delicious soup. So we always tell to our mama, Mama, voglio una zuppa di ceci. <laughs> Often they were mixed together with pasta. If you look at the proteins of fava beans or other legumes with the proteins of pasta, they are the same quality of the proteins of the uh, meat. So it was called the meat of the poor. Okay. So meat of the poor would have been the fava. pasta with fagioli with fava pasta yeah. con le fave. That's the food of the poor. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Fava as fava. long as you mix with the pasta. Yeah, yeah. basically white beans with the pasta. With yes. the pasta, yes. Very nice. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking southern Italy with Alfio Di Mauro and Tommaso Pante. Our phone number. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Darlene's on the phone from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Darlene, thanks for your call. Thoughts for Alfio or Tommaso? Well, I just wanted to share, we had the opportunity in uh, June of 2009 to spend a month in southern Italy, and we did include 10 days for Puglia, And we were, well, we loved the whole trip, but I feel as if there are not very many American tourists um, heading to southern Italy, and Puglia in particular was just a fabulous um, 10-day vacation for ourselves with our young daughter. Now, that's a, a, a rustic countryside, and I would imagine a little bit of a language barrier compared to Rome or Florence. How did you function with the language challenges? I speak a little Italian, and I will tell you that um, we did go the entire 10 days rarely speaking any English. My husband speaks no Italian, and he got by fine, just as long as you carry your dictionary or your phrase book with you, and um, folks are more than willing to um, help out whenever they can. And sign language works great. So we we really didn't have a problem with the language. And it, it actually 
it made it nice. I mean, it felt like we were really in Italy because everyone was speaking Italian all the time. And it's almost like Italians have had to deal with this in the past. People coming into their land that don't speak their language, and they're clever at communicating. You can manage, can't you? Absolutely. It was not difficult. The other point I think isn't made often enough, um, particularly with Americans, are the beautiful, beautiful beaches in Puglia Hmm. in particular. The most beautiful beaches I've seen in in all of Italy. I've I've not been to Sicily, so I, I can't speak to that. But to travel with a young child, Layla is six, and to be able to sightsee in the morning, Um, have lunch, and then spend the afternoon a couple hours on a beautiful beach, whether it's uh, near the hotel or apartment we were staying in or somewhere along the travels for the day to take a one- or two-hour break was really a wonderful way to travel in the summertime. Yes, that's true. I agree with you because in Puglia we have one of the most beautiful sandy beach of all Italy. I mean, when you talk about sand beach, you talk about, uh, you know, Sardinia. But in Puglia we have a very similar, even better beaches. So, for example, if you go south of Puglia, in the province of Lecce, we have some area in the Salento Peninsula, uh, which are really untouched, off of the beaten path, absolutely. In the province of Taranto, also, we have beautiful beaches, but also in Vieste. You know, when I think of beautiful beaches in the north, I'm thinking of a very densely populated part of Italy, and it's a traffic jam of fiats and teenagers and discos. And frankly, I want to stay away. But is it different in the south? The best thing you can do in the south, go to the nature reserve. We have several all around the south of Italy. I can mention several of them in Sicily. Vendicari nearby Syracuse, uh, Lozingaro uh, nearby Palermo. Often you are just by yourself, and it is such a fantastic experience. And you are in the clear water and seems to be in a tropical island. Wow, it sounds much better than the the Riviera up north. Uh, Tommaso? Absolutely, uh, I agree with that because we have a long extension, miles and miles of white beaches and dessert. I mean, you go you go there, you don't find you don't find people. You find just a few people in and there, but really it's not a very crowded area. You can go in August, July and August, where elsewhere in Italy is packed, but not in the southern part. And the, the quality of the water, I mean, we have every year inspection by, you know, the authorities. And they said that this water, this ocean is one of the cleanest we have in the Mediterranean. And we're talking Puglia mostly here. Puglia, Calabria and Sicilia, yes. Okay, all across southern Italy. Darlene, there's some good ideas for you and thanks for your feedback. Actually, Rick, if I say something about what Darlene said, uh, it is very interesting that she was able to communicate anyway, Mm -hmm. even if she didn't manage the Italian language perfectly, but she knew a little. And also, she used a lot of hand gesture. You know, we people from the South, we are famous for communicating without saying a word, and we always do hand gesture. You're moving your hands as you speak right now. I'll be able to talk with Tommaso for five minutes, talk, (laughs) quote-unquote, without saying a word, and we will understand each other so perfectly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling through the south of Italy with Alfio Di Moro and Tommaso Conte. Paula's on the line in Seattle, Washington. Paula, thanks for your call. I just wanted to say be sure to go to Sicily. It's a wonderful place to travel. We went there in the middle of winter with no reservations, and we had a wonderful time. The Sicilians took very good care of us. Thank you. I've had the same experience. I think a lot of people have these, you know, old-fashioned movie images of Sicily, and you think you're going to have a lot of deadbolts on the door, and you're going to have to run for cover. And you go there, and you find the friendliest people in a lot of ways you'll meet anywhere in Europe. That's right. So, so travel to Sicily. Now, Paula, have you been to other parts of southern Italy, uh, not Sicily, but elsewhere in southern Italy, and what was your experience? Um, we were at the same time of year. We were also in Matera, and in Rio Calabria, uh, Reggio yeah, Calabria, Reggio Calabria. And, and we got sent to Reggio Calabria by a man from Volterra to see the race warriors, and it was worth the trip. Bronzi di Riace. And what is that, Alfio? Those are two beautiful examples of classic Greek bronze statues that were found in 1972 nearby the town of Riace, in the province of Reggio Calabria, and they uh, built a museum museum around them in Reggio Calabria, the Museum of Greater Greece, of Magna Grecia. 
Uh, so it's interesting to me that they found these in a humble part of Italy and they were not taken to Rome to put in the big museum, but they stayed in that town. They stayed in the town to try to improve tourism there. Ah, and actually it makes sense because Calabria, Puglia, Sicily, they were part of the greater Greece, so they stayed there. And you there. mentioned this word Magna Grecia. This is an important concept for travelers to know that 500 years before Christ, southern Italy was called Magna Grecia. Magna Grecia, yes, yes. Which is? which is the greater Greece. I mean, in that period of time, uh, this area of Italy was at least much important than Greece itself. So, in fact, we have many colonies of Magna Grecia, Metaponto, the Sibarite, and many other places are located, many other archaeological places are located in this and area. And it's interesting for me that away from the conservative power center of Greece, like Athens, you'll have a little more liberty to make some more innovative architecture. And I think when you look at the Greek architecture in Taormina and in Agrigento and in Segesta, you find some of the best ancient Greek temples uh, that you'll find anywhere in the ancient Greek world. Yes, uh, not only best architecture, but also very well preserved. We can say that these temples are still like the Greek that left this temple 10 years ago, 20 years ago, because, you know, the state of preservation is excellent. I mean, uh, what can I say? Not only archaeology, but also architecture. Don't forget that in Calabria, in Calabria we have great Byzantine churches, Bivongi, all this area was Byzantine. And, and Baroque churches, and too. And Baroque churches in Sicily. So, I mean, a great mixture. In Puglia. A great mixture of, you know, archaeology and architecture, which make of this area one of the most beautiful, absolutely, of the Mediterranean. Paula, in Seattle, you're getting us all excited about a trip back to southern Italy. Thanks for your call. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye now. Ciao. Okay, let's travel on to Sicily now, because both you guys are from Sicily. We're going to cross the straits from southern Italy out to the island, Sicily. And when you think of Sicily, it's sort of a many-layered history. It's a fascinating, rich history. that You get a, a whiff of Arabia, and you get a lot of uh, a Norman conquest and so on. And, of course, you've got the Italian flavor. Uh, tell me how that affects the culture today, this, this many invasions that you've had. Tommaso. This is very positive for us because uh, we have many, many monuments which are dating back to the different historical period. We have a Greek monument, Roman monuments, I mean, Arab architecture, Norman, uh, Spanish, and so on. I mean, that makes a rich culture. And what comes with a rich culture, Alfio, is a lot of complexity. And I, t- I find a lot of people that find Italy a little bit too challenging, and I think uh, don't go farther south because it gets more challenging. People who love the, the sort of uh, unpredictability and, and, and liveliness of Italy, I tell them to go farther south. And, and Sicily is really Italy in the extreme in that regard. It is. You know what is it? If you go back to the Roman times and you pay attention about a Roman town, you see a, a very regular grid of... Um, a grid plan, a very logical floor plan. Yes, and, or, or street and you plan. know this is very Roman, very logical. But then after the Romans, we had the Byzantine, but also the Arabs. Okay, and this is where they brought that different way of thinking. The streets plan of a of an Arabic town is like a spilled plate of spaghetti. It's exactly. labyrinthine. Yeah, exactly. If you pay attention about the layout of an Arab town, it's completely different from a Greek or a Roman town. And that puts also in what is today Sicily, plus with a lot of years of Spanish domination, everything is now um, blended in a mix and is a wonderful example of organized chaos. This is how we call it. You know, we are so good at that that we are able to manage chaos, organize it, and live with it. So you celebrate chaos in Sicily. We do. We don't even know, but we do. Because if you go to another, let's say you go to Denmark, you might think... Boring. Everything's organized. Everything's yeah. efficient. Everything's you know, clean. And you know, we <laughs> think that probably that, that is boring for us. We get bored for that kind of very well organized things. So we deal. We deal very well with the chaos. Even the traffic jam. This is a great way, you know, to get uh, out from the traffic jam. We don't follow the traffic lights. When it's red, we pass. When it's green, we stop. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking travel in southern Italy and Sicily, and we're talking creative lifestyles, I guess you could say. I think that in Italy, sort of a national pastime is trying to avoid paying your taxes. Yes, we have a high, very high tax evasion. Unfortunately, this is one of the main problems we have all over Italy, but in the southern part, it's much more evident, this problem. Unfortunately, the taxation system in Italy is very bad. You could imagine that if you had more than 
uh, I mean, 95,000 euros, you pay the 63% of taxes on so that. So if you make $140,000 a year, you pay 63% percent tax. is for taxes. the government. So it's progressive. And the less people pay taxes, the more they rise yeah. the percentage. So if, if half of the people are avoiding their taxes, everybody else is taxed yeah. double, and it becomes a part of the culture that you pay less taxes yeah. and everybody exactly. has higher tax yeah. rates. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What an but it is very spiral. true uh, what you said. There is a, a kind of... A, regional sport or national sport in Italy trying not to obey the law. And that is a truly paradox. And this comes from the Roman heritage, the highest number of laws of any country in the world. But we have a say in, Italy, in Italian that is fatta la legge, trovato l'inganno. Okay, we have a new law, we have a new way to walk around the system. So there's a new law, there's a new way around it. Around yeah, and that know, is more popular than soccer is. That, that's the national sport. <laughs> that's the national sport. I even thought with a friend, uh, I was getting in his car and he had, uh, of course, the car will make a noise at you if you don't put on your seatbelt. So they have a very clever little high-tech gadget, a plug. You put this plug in your seatbelt and you don't have to wear it. Yes, that's true. This is I a, use this system. Or, <laughs> or as, as the Neapolitans uh, ended up doing, they were selling T-shirt, white T-shirt with a, with a, a diagonal yeah. stripe yeah. Uh, that was giving the, the impression that you were wearing your seatbelt. So from, from the distance, the police in a roadblock couldn't recognize. So the police sees the seatbelt going across your yeah, chest. Yeah, and they have it's... one for the driver, one for the passenger, going opposite way, of course. And <sighs> the police from far away will say, okay, they're fine. So Italian ingenuity. Say that one more time, a new law, a new way to get around it. And fatta la legge, trovato l'inganno. Ooh. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring southern Italy and Sicily with Alfio Di Moro and Tommaso Ponte. Tommaso, Alfio, mille grazie. Amuninni. Andiamo a visitare la stupenda isola di Sicilia. Wow. <laughs> Andiamo, let's <laughs> yeah. go. And the From sunny Mediterranean shores to pirates on the Carolina coast. Up next, Terence Zepke sets us straight on the hard-living privateers and buccaneers who plied the waters of the Spanish Main and colonial America and the real stories behind their legacy. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. In colonial America, terrorist threats often came from the sea in the form of pirate ships flying that Jolly Roger flag. Turns out, their stories are just as interesting as the pirate tales spun by Hollywood movies today, like women disguised as cabin boys, bored aristocrats out for adventure on the high seas, crews too drunk on rum to fight, and corrupt colonial officials getting in on the game. Today, a visit to the beaches of the Carolina coast can include exploring the legacy of these hard-drinking rogues. Some of their names might live on, say, as a brand name on a bottle of rum. The stories of the most intriguing buccaneers are what Terence Zepke is here to tell us all about. The second edition of her guide to pirate legends, history, and lore is out, and it's called Pirates of the Carolinas. Welcome, Terence. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. Give us some background on on this. What what was the golden age of piracy in the United States? Well, we really don't know how long piracy has been around, um, but it's been around at least 2,500 years there, and there was an era during its heyday that was known as the golden age of piracy. And that was the late 17th century to early 18th centuries. Oh, I see. So it's before the United States. It'd be colonial America. It was colonial America when they came over here. And interesting, North Carolina had... A lot of the officials had partnerships with the pirates. We were sort of a commerce-poor place back then, so we actually welcomed pirates like Blackbeard until they had the big crackdown on piracy, and that was the end of that. So is that kind of the fine line between a privateer and a pirate? What's the difference? 
It was such a fine line, Rick. (laughs) Basically, a little piece of paper, because a lot of the pirates started out, they were privateers, and they were involved in Queen Anne's War, wars all over Europe and everything, and they were commissioned to attack enemy ships in order to get money, to get booty to help fund the war. And they split that money with the crown. So, yeah, so the, the king or the governor would say, you are licensed to attack ships as long as they're not our ships. And you can yeah. keep half the booty, but you got to give the rest to us so we can fight our war or whatever. Right. And so then imagine when the war is over and your Navy is no longer needed like that. Well, this is all these men have ever known. There's no employment. You know, it was a fine line anyway between privateer and pirates. So a lot of them just became officially pirates. And they got to keep everything. Yeah. <laughs> nice business model. So now what was the basic action? It was mostly ships going from uh, Europe to the Americas, or where did they get their best uh, opportunities? At that time, it was all these merchant ships that were doing these trade routes. And so you could just sort of sit out there. It was just like fishing Mm. and Mm. just pluck them off. They weren't very well armed or anything. They were slow because they were big, heavy ships with a lot of merchandise on board and also and it really didn't matter this was one of those falsehoods that people realized people thought pirates just wanted gold and pieces of eight Mm -hmm. but the truth is that they wanted what they could sell Hmm. so when they got these merchant ships and they had all these realms of fine linens and silks and tobacco and rum and all this was this was pay dirt oh so they would get this stuff and then they would go to the next port and just like you see when you travel a lot people stealing stuff off of ships and setting up a little stand and, and selling it cheap Absolutely. And that's what they did. And then, like I said, a lot of them were in partnership with the authorities here. And so when they came into port and all that, they would look the other way and then they would get a cut for looking the other way. And the merchants would get discounted goods. The pirates would get money. I mean, everybody was happy. Sounds like a win, 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 lose situation. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Terrence Zepke and her book's called Pirates of the Carolinas. We always think Pirates of the Caribbean And your book is Pirates of the Carolinas. Why was there so much pirate action in the Carolina coast? Well, at that time, these were pretty poor states, so we needed to get commerce wherever we could. So pirates were good for business. So we sort of were a safe haven for pirates. In fact, Blackbeard, who was one of the, probably the biggest chapter discussed in this book, he actually set up shop, actually made a home and actually came part of the community and all up in in North Carolina. Now, he sounds like an incredible guy, and he's got this treacherous image, but According to your book, he he never actually killed anyone because people surrendered when they saw his flag. He was so had such a ferocious image. I think marketing majors should study Blackbeard because back before that anybody knew what PR marketing promotions was, this guy was on top of it. Hmm. He knew reputation was everything. So he didn't have to do much fighting because his reputation preceded him. So as soon as he ran up his flag, People surrendered because they weren't going to take on the great Blackbeard. Whoa. Yeah, he was tall, dark, and handsome. He was like 6'5", and he had pistols Hmm. and cutlasses and everything draped all over him. And then before he would go into battle, he would light these fuses in his hair so that when he landed on the ship, there's this smoking huge (laughs) guy with all these guns hanging off of him, dressed in black with this black beard and everything. So it gave, you know, quite a presence and would give him the element of advantage. And people would just uh, say, take my, take all my valuables, <laughs> but just don't kill me. Yeah. And consequently, he never had to kill anybody. Yeah, well, he did some stuff, too, to help his reputation. He actually took on the Royal Navy one time and defeated them. Huh. And pirates tended to stay away from the Royal Navy because they just weren't going weren't gonna to win when you went up against the Royal Navy, yeah. but Blackbeard did. So that helped fuel his reputation. It must have been a fun guy to work for, I guess. He's not just a Johnny Depp kind of fantasy, though. He's a real guy. And as a matter of fact, you write about... There's a a permanent Blackbeard exhibit in the North Carolina Maritime Museum. Tell us about that. Yeah, in Beaufort, North Carolina, they actually have found what they almost certainly believe, you can't say for certain, but it's pretty certain based on their evidence, that this was the Queen Anne's Revenge, one of Blackbeard's flagships, and it sank off the waters of uh, Beaufort Inlet. And so they've been excavating this ship for many years now, since I think 1996. Wow. It's an ongoing process, and so as they get things they bring up from the ship and all. They are cleaning them and preserving them and then putting them on display Hmm. at this facility. And it's a great place to learn about the North Carolina coast, about piracy, about maritime history. That's the uh, Maritime Museum in Beaufort, North Carolina. So if if you're interested in, you know, pirate lore, would you say that's the single best place to go for actual artifacts? I, I would say so, at least in the Carolinas. You also talk about pirate tours of Charleston. How's Charleston associated with piracy and what do you see there? 
Oh, Charleston was a big hangout for pirates back in the day. They had lots of places that they liked to come into shore, come into port and uh, drink uh, and be merry. And actually also there were a lot of hangings of pirates that took place in South Carolina as well. And you can actually go on your own or as part of a tour and see White Point Gardens where some of the pirates were hanged. Um, That was a big thing back in the day was they actually did public hangings and it was supposed to discourage piracy. You know, they would leave them up for a long time and put them in these things called gibbets, Mm. which were custom-made cages for their bodies and all. So you get a real good history if you do the pirate walk. There's a really good one in in Charleston. There's just about every kind of walk and tour option you can imagine in Charleston, including the the pirate walk. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Pirates of the Carolinas with Terrence Zepke. Terrence, I I love this. You put a, a stanza from one of these pirate songs, and it's... I don't have a very good pirate accent, but the, the words go, Some fight tis for riches, some fight tis for fame. This first I despise, and the last is a name. I fight tis for vengeance, I love to see flow. At the stroke of my saber, the life of my foe. That sounds pretty bloody. Is that just sort of a cheerleading song, or was there actually... How bloody were the pirates actually? Oh, it could get pretty bloody, because you're fighting to, to the end. You know, once you engage in battle, Blackbeard, when he actually finally reached his end, when the Royal Navy actually finally did beat him, um, it was considered to be the bloodiest battle in pirate history. And he sustained more than two dozen gunshot wounds and cutlass wounds and all that before he was finally beheaded. Lay the groundwork for the battle. Why and where and what happened? Uh, up in the Outer Banks, and if this is really interesting, some recent history has revealed that we believe that Blackbeard actually was tipped off, that Lieutenant Maynard with the Royal Navy was hot on his trail, and he had opportunity to get out of there, and he believed that he knew the waters, knew the land, and, and was a better fighter, and he, he convinced himself he could defeat the Royal Navy, and it was just, the, the ship was just covered in blood from, you know, because the men all fought to the end. You know, because they know if the Navy captures you, you're going to be tried and hanged. So you've got nothing to lose to fight to the end. And so they were all in with it, you know. And and actually, they had told Lieutenant Maynard he he needed proof that he actually killed Blackbeard. So he had to behead him and bring the head back to Virginia so that his superiors would believe he did indeed kill the legendary Blackbeard. And he did that? Yes, he did that. And what happened to the head of Blackbeard? We don't know. <laughs> Ooh, there's a ghost story for you. What I found particularly interesting in your book, Pirates of the Carolinas, was the story of women pirates, uh, particularly Anne Bonny, who you said is your favorite pirate. Tell us about her and, and why is she your favorite? Well, because I think in earlier times, if I had had her choices, I would have done exactly what she did. And I have an Irish background. I have wild, long red hair. Uh, I was rebellious and everything. So I think I can relate to Anne Bonny. But she was actually from a very affluent family. Her father was a wealthy planter, a businessman, merchant and everything. At that time, of course, they prearranged marriages so you could marry into another suitable family. And so he had arranged for her to marry this fella who she barely knew and he was very boring. And she was supposed to, you know, do all the things that women did at that time where you threw parties and, you know, knitted, that kind of stuff. And Anne Bonny just said, this is not the life I want. And she ran off to sea and became a pirate. So that was kind of a really interesting thing. Now, of course, she couldn't openly be a woman pirate. She had to disguise herself. And it was a very long time before anybody realized that she was actually a woman before that came out. And by that time, she'd proven herself to the crew and nobody gave a problem. But women weren't allowed on the ships back then. So a lot of these women pirates were actually disguised you know, because there were boys, young men and everything. So it wasn't too hard to disguise themselves on these ships. Yeah. You know, they, they taped their their breasts so that they would, you know, and they wore loose clothing. And they, they weren't showering hygiene things on the ships. So you couldn't really tell. They looked a lot like the boys that were there that helped load the cannons and things. These boys, they didn't have any facial hair or anything. So they looked, you know, they could pass. Tough women, tough women. Thinking of Anne Bonny and, and, and the gentleman pirates like Stead Bonnet that you write about, It wasn't just uh, looting and plundering. There was more to that among these pirates. Yeah, they were a brethren. They may have been misfits, uh, outlaws, criminals, whatever, in society, but once they came on the ship and became a part of the crew, they had each other's backs, and, you know, they became much more than pirates. They were living life on their own terms. This was about freedom. Whatever life they would have had on land, they've come out here, and they can work when they work. They can 
party when they want to party. They can, I mean, they had musicians on board and, you know, they, they knew how to live large and they knew that they probably would die. So they lived as well as they could in what was probably going to be a very short life for them as because of piracy. So they knew they probably had short lives. They did, but they lived it hard and fast while they were still here. Hanging from the rigging, singing Yo-Ho-Ho. And a bottle of rum. Terrence Zepke, thanks a lot. And uh, we all know a little bit more now about Pirates of the Carolinas. Last week on our show, when we talked with listeners about the kindness of strangers they experienced in their travels, we spoke with a listener aboard his sailboat in the Florida Keys. He was talking about a kindness he experienced from a stranger while on a road trip in Mexico. When we first talked with Jay Bruce, he also mentioned he'd been living for years on his sailboat and exploring the Caribbean and the coasts of the Americas. Not exactly living like a pirate, but we thought you'd enjoy hearing the rest of the conversation we recorded with him right now about what it's like to live full-time at sea. And Jay Bruce is on the line in a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Jay Bruce, thanks for your call. Yes, thanks, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. I really enjoy your show. I'm now in the Florida Keys for a while, but I've been through all of the Bahamas. I've been the entire Pacific coast of the United States and Central America through the Panama Canal, um, the entire east coast of North America, including all the Great Lakes and the Bahamas. So how long have you been living on your boat? Uh, since 1988. Whoa. So, yes. Is there a, a community of uh, people like you that you, you bump into when you moor at some island in the Caribbean or something? And what kind yeah. of a culture is that? It's fantastic because I actually have friends who I still communicate with, and now that we have the Internet, what a wonderful tool people who I met during my first years out, and I still uh, am in contact with people. And when you pull into a place and you see a boat with a familiar name on it, and that you remember that boat from some place in the world some time ago, it doesn't make any difference when you get there and suddenly you're back to being with your best friends again. It's like your long-lost brothers or something that yeah. you find each other. And the people here... Even if you don't get along with them personally, whenever somebody needs help, there's always somebody there to help you. Wow. And we, we are all like that. And, you know, truly, we live a very back-to-nature kind of life. I have solar panels and wind generator that provide me with all the electricity that I need, period. I don't have to hook up to shore power for anything that I have. Wow. And I do catch a lot of my food. And, of course, I buy rice and I buy flour and sugar and salt and things like that. But... I do eat a lot of seafood and a lot of vegetables, and uh, I keep a couple of herbs growing on my boat, so I have those, and we're pretty much self-sufficient. So Boy. I have a water maker, so I can make water if I need to. I would think there's sort of a do-it-yourself and a communal help-everybody-out culture when it comes to people living off the land and living off their boats. Absolutely, absolutely. Anything that I need to have done on my boat, there is someone I know who can do it. And so, you know, if I buy the parts and have them ready... I know that I can find someone who can help me do the job if I can't do it myself. And like I said, even people who you don't really get along with and that you don't choose to socialize with, if they need help, you will be there and help them. And you make friends. You make lifelong friends. And people do this. There are single men and single women out there who are doing this, sailing around the world by themselves. There are families with two, three, four children who are doing this. They have children born on the boats and continue to raise them all the way through. A lot of them will they'll do the homeschool all the way up until high school and then send them to land to do high school. But the children who are raised out there, you'll find that they are such a, a different type of child because they're not raised with all the conveniences of, of the United States and not always wanting to play with the Xbox. You know, they're out there yeah. swimming with nature and learning Seems. about that and you know, it's just a wonderful community. And all the kids seem to be genuinely nice kids. It's it's wonderful. And a lot of times, too, you can actually get some of the small ones. When I say small, maybe like 12, 13-year-olds, they can crawl up to places that... They can that go get the, the barnacles off your home. any longer. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. Hey, when you read in the newspaper about these pirates and people like you who yeah. all of a sudden get taken over by pirates, are they just right. foolhardy and going to the wrong places? Or, or can that can that surprise you around the corner anywhere? 
uh, it can surprise you, but on the other hand, um, there are places that we know of to stay away from. Like, for example, when you want to go from uh, Australia up to Indonesia, you know that you're going to go at a certain time of the year because of the, the way that the winds blow. And so all of the sailors who are going to do that crossing, they gather, and they'll do it all as a group, and that way you feel a little more protected. Of course, right now, Somalia, you know, we know that it's a bad area, but again, it's the only way to get to the Suez Canal if you want to go up into the Mediterranean without going around Africa. So ah, you've got a choice. To and make the pirates there. know that, yeah. So you have and the to pirates go. know that, of course. Mm-hmm. Now it's still rare for them to really take a small sailboat because there's not that much they can do with it. It's not right. as valuable. You know, they're hoping for the hostage situation that the U.S. Sure. government is going to come in and and do something with that respect. So, any regrets over the last twenty years of living on your boat? Not a single one. Life is going to go by one way or another. You might as well do it eating the wind and exploring the world and making all those friends. Absolutely. Uh, Right right now what I do is actually I work with a young people's group that we take them out sailing here in the Florida Keys, and we uh, teach them about the reefs that are here, teach them how to sail, teach them a little bit about fishing. It's not primarily a fishing trip, but mainly Mm -hmm. it's to teach them about our ecosystem down here. And we'll get 1,200 people a week that come through our program. And so it's a it's a wonderful program. You're not contributing very much to the economy, but it sounds like you're having a very <laughs> fulfilling life. I think this is an inspiration. Thank you so much, and yes, happy yes. sailing. All right. Well, thank you very, very much. I really appreciate your show. I listen to it every time I'm in within range of NPR. All right. Good man. Thanks Great. a lot. Thank you very much. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. I'm going to get you on a slow boat to China. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. You'll find links to our guests and archives of each week's show in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Thanks for studio help to our colleagues at WUNC in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and for website help to Andrew Wakeling and Kate Milhern Graham. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Her. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com. <laughs>